This morning, our text can be found in the Old Testament, 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 21. It'll be helpful if you have a Bible in front of you. So if you didn't bring one, there's a pew Bible. And on page 303 is the text. This is the we, we've been in uh, Psalms the last few weeks. That's the wisdom and poetry section of the Old Testament. But if you go back, you're into the historical books and first and second Kings, similar to first and second Chronicles. And they just chronicle the lives of the kings of Israel and then Israel and Judah when the kingdom divides. And so we found our, we find ourselves in first Kings chapter 21. And I'll have you remain seated because I'm going to read the entire chapter because it fits as one unit. And it'll be helpful for you to get a sense of what's happening here in this particular um, passage. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria, and after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. And Ahab lay down on his bed, turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you have eaten no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and he said, and and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else it will please you. I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders that lived in this lived in Naboth, lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of this city, the elders and the leaders who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them and was written in the letters that she had sent to them. And they proclaimed a fast and said to Naboth that the set Naboth at the head of the table and two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, 
Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off from cut you off from Ahab, every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam and like the house of Basha for the anger to which you have provoked me. And because you have made made Israel to sin and of Jezebel, the Lord also said the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat and any one of, of his who dies in the open countries, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And there was none who sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words... He tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and he went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Have you seen Ahab, how he has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. A very sobering account. Let's take a few minutes to consider this word before we preach it together. Well, this is really a special moment and a special day for me personally, as it, I want it to be for you as people in the congregation. This is Jason Pogue. Uh, some of you, uh, yeah. Jason was here um, three years ago. Well, he left three years ago. So he's been in seminary, Covenant Seminary, for the last three years. And he'll tell you some more about that. But Jason was a student at UNCW, was involved with uh, the college ministry here, was our first ministry apprentice. And so at the end of the, the year of his ministry of apprenticeship, uh, he was grappling with different things to do. And he's landed in going to seminary and he's uh, finished his third of five years, if you can imagine, five years. Uh, so we're, we're a part of really helping and supporting Jason uh, prayerfully, financially, relationally, all those things. And one of the things that's really important to the leadership of the church, and maybe particularly important to me, is watching the next generation come up, whether it's a, a child or whether it's a college student who's going to move into um, in a church ministry in some way. So it's really a great, it's, it's like a, uh, the fruit has, has been born. And so today, Jason was in town, or he got close enough to, to in town, he was visiting his parents down in Myrtle Beach, and I was like, that's close enough. Come up on Sunday and preach for us. So uh, let me pray for him, and then we'll hear the word of the Lord together from Jason. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to, um, 
to just see how you work and to be a very small part of that working. And today, I, I particularly pray for, for Jason, his wife, Abby, uh, their new family, and uh, their venture together as they um, learn how to live with each other, learn how to listen to you, seek out direction for them as the next two years finish up and where they should go and what they should do. All the questions that he has in his life, we trust that you will um, show him the way. Um, now we pray for him to show us your way, uh, to take this passage and um, imprint it on our minds in a way that we learn what it is that you would want us to see and to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank, Thank you, brother. Paul. Yeah, I, uh, when I showed up. Are you on? I think so. We on there? Okay. All right. When I showed up, uh, Paul asked me, do you want me to read this whole passage? And uh, I said, yeah. You know, I actually, I blame you, Paul, and Christ community for giving me a love for the word. And I really am grateful for my time that I spent here and take a lot with me from Paul's teaching and from all of you, the way you raised me from a young Christian and sent me out. So I just want to say that I'm really grateful for that. Um, I'd love to tell you more about that uh, this morning, but uh, this is more about God than about me. Um, so this text this morning, 1 Kings 21, as Paul said, is in the historical books. And um, yeah, there's this line, uh, do you have something you'd like to tell me? Do you have something you'd like to tell me? Now, these words are, you know, not too crazy until they're said with just the right tone and inflection from a parent to a child that they have the means of striking fear into every kid's heart. Do you have something you'd like to tell me? And my friend a few weeks ago found himself saying these very words to his four-year-old daughter. See, he noticed that his little one-year-old girl suddenly was missing these beautiful locks of her hair. They were missing. And eventually he put two and two together and realized, I think my four-year-old is cutting my one-year-old's hair. Do you have something you'd like to tell me? Well, his four-year-old at the time, she was just doing what she wanted to do. Her dad wasn't present in the room and, you know, she wanted to cut some hair. She didn't realize that even though her dad wasn't present in the room with her, at that moment he had a very active claim on that aspect of her life. And we do this too, don't we? I mean, we do this all the time. We forget that even though the Lord is not visibly present with us, that everywhere we go, He has an active claim on our lives. We take Jesus' words to heart and we go to our prayer closet, but sometimes we forget that when we leave, God leaves with us. We live as if God's claim is just on our quiet times or our Bible studies or just in our sermons or our small groups. And maybe we don't believe sometimes that He's powerful enough to meet us in all the areas of our lives. And we just forget that He really is present with us. And this text this morning has a picture of a very different God for us. 
a picture of a God who is active and moving in the world and has a claim on every single aspect of our lives. We learn in this text that the Lord is on the throne. You know, one of my seminary professors, he has us repeat sentences before class, and one of them is that context is king. And so to understand this portion of the text, we want to know a little bit about the context. Specifically, when we're trying to understand this king, King Ahab, what is this idea of kingship? Um, Well, if we look throughout scriptures, it starts from the beginning to the end. In Eden, God created all things, and he put Adam and Eve in the garden. And this is King Yahweh, the Lord himself. And he tells Adam and Eve he wants them to be his, almost like his vice regents, extending this kingdom of justice and peace and joy that's glorifying God. And we see that even after their rebellion against God, this, this mission goes forth. It continues as God calls Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel. Israel is supposed to be a light to all nations. It's supposed to be a place where Israel is acting out the kingdom of God in such a way that draws all the nations in and says, I want to worship that king. And the kingdom goes forth. The prophets are trying to call back Israel from losing this vision. They're calling them back to this idea of shalom, this idea of peace in our Bibles. But it's so much more than that. It's like flourishing. It's a wholeness, a delight in life. It's, if you will, it's how things ought to be in a world that we know is not the way it's supposed to be. And the king of Israel, at this point, there's a kingship over Israel. And the king is supposed to reflect the greater king, King Yahweh. The king is supposed to implement this kingdom of justice, of shalom, of wholeness, in a way that glorifies God and draws people in. Supposed to be a sacrificial king, a king in relationship with the true king. But this is not the description of Ahab, is it? So we read this text Ahab is far from the king that God would call him to be. Ahab wants what he wants. He wants this vineyard, he wants to turn it into his garden. And he's willing to trample people in the process. Though Ahab is living as though God doesn't exist. Though Ahab is living as God doesn't exist, we see in this text that God sees what's going on and has an active claim. The Lord will not allow his kingdom to be shaken. We see in 1 Kings 21 that the Lord is on the throne. And you see, if this is the Lord, if this is the real king that is on the throne, it changes everything. It claims every aspect of our lives. It's not just the king of our closet and our quiet times, but he's the king of everything. So we see in the text that because this Lord is on the throne, we should reflect the character of the king and his kingdom. We should reflect the character of the king and his kingdom, and we should do so with our property, with our power, and with our posture. With our property here in the beginning of the story, it's like the camera lens, it zooms in. I can almost see Ahab sitting on his porch, you know, like sipping on lemonade. And he looks out and he sees Naboth's vineyard. Oh, look at that land. It's right next to my property. That could be an awesome garden. 
So he goes to Naboth and he makes this offer for his garden. And it seems like a pretty fair offer, right? He gives him fair market price. I'll give you a better one. I'll pay for it. What do you want? But Naboth refuses. What is going on here? Well, Naboth knows that this land is not his land. It's God's land. It's the land that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 17, the promised land. It's the land that Joshua distributed amongst the tribes of Israel as an inheritance given to them as the children of the Lord. And it's the land that there are many laws that the Israelites were not supposed to sell it outside of their family. It's not their land to sell. Ahab's request itself flies in the face of God's desires. He's acting as if God doesn't have a claim on this aspect of his life. But Naboth knows that everything he has belongs to the Lord. Everything he has belongs to the Lord. How can Naboth stand up to the king of Israel? Naboth, this poor farmer, stands up to the king of a nation and refuses Oh, it's because Naboth knows a greater king. He knows the king, Yahweh, is on the throne. And because of that, he reflects the character of the king and his kingdom with his property. Well, Abby and I, we live, my wife, Abby here, by the way. Abby and I, we live in somebody else's beautiful home. It's beginning to be a pattern. Uh, It's wonderful, you know, it is wonderful. And when I moved in, Abby had been there for some time and I was trying to make myself at home, you know, hang some things. And um, I started to hang my guitar on the wall because it's pretty, you know, it's like a decoration that you can use. It's, It's great. I started to hang it on the wall and I noticed that the wall was crumbling away as I was hanging it. And I thought this could be a problem. I realized that this whole place is, it's an old home. It's all plaster walls. And if you've ever worked with plaster, it just crumbles before you when you try to do something like this. See, what I realized was ultimately this is not my house. And if I keep doing this, there's going to be a big hole in this wall. I realized that even though the people of this home want us to enjoy it, in fact, they delight in us enjoying this house, It's ultimately not my house. And ultimately, I want to use it in a way that reflects how they would use it, how they see it to be used. Our relationship to the owners actually compels us. It constrains us to use their home in a way that reflects their character and desires. How much more when we know that all of our stuff is from the Lord, everything that we have. How are you using your property to reflect the character of the king and his kingdom? Your home, your money, your stuff, your time. It might be as big as opening up an extra bedroom to someone in need, a needy map intern. But it might be something as small as inviting your neighbor over for dinner. Maybe it's asking How does the character of the king and his kingdom influence my next purchase, influence how I spend my summer? And it really, the question is not how much that we have, but if we're using it for the Lord. 
I'm always amazed we have some friends in St. Louis that are refugees from Nepal. And they come here with nothing. But if you go over to their house, they're going to give you the best food they have. You're going to leave full. They're going to give you everything that they have. Because the Lord is on the throne, we must reflect the character of the king of his kingdom with our property, but also with our power. If we move on in the text here, verses 5 through 16, we see this plan that Jezebel hatches. And it seems to go flawlessly from beginning to end. She, you know, takes the king's authority and sets out for this corrupt plot. And it all runs without a hitch. But many hands make light work. We know it's not just Jezebel here in the text. First of all, Ahab's the one that gives his authority over. He's sitting here pouting like a child because he doesn't have his garden. And he lets Jezebel do whatever she wants with the most power, powerful man in the nation. Hands it over to somebody else. So but we know that Jezebel and Ahab are not the only characters either. Jezebel sends this letter off. She sends it off. And the elders and leaders go right along with it, don't they? As well as the judges in the trial. And eventually, Naboth is stoned. And that's the entire community. It's a community event. Many hands make light work. See, they all had power in this situation. They all had varying degrees of power. Some people more, some people less. But they all had power. This is supposed to be Israel. This is supposed to be a light to the nations. Where people gather and say, yes, I want to follow that king. They all had a hand. And Naboth was wrongly put to death. Events aren't... Always what they seem at first glance, are they? You may have heard this story before. In 1964, a woman by the name of Kitty Genovese was killed outside of her apartment in Queens, New York. And the headline two weeks later said, 37 people who saw murder did not call police. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. The reality is, things are not that black and white. Things are complicated. It's more varied than that. Um, in reality, the first attack came, and the reason there were more than one attack is because one man screamed out of his window to scare the attacker away. Another woman, after the second attack, came up and held Kitty in her arms to comfort her. She had no idea if the attacker was gone. But there are other people. A man that saw the first attack and decided he'd just take a nap. Another man who was terrified and had no idea what to do or who to call. At the time, there was no 911. He called two friends and didn't have any clue what to do that could actually be helpful. See, they all had power. They all had varying degrees of power. Some of them were on the fifth story, and all they could do was yell. Yell, excuse me. Uh, some of them were on the first floor and could go hold her in their arms. They all had varying degrees of power. And the question is not how much power did they have, but how did they choose to use it? In the same way, we all have 
varying degrees of power in all of our lives. Some of it's formal, maybe in title or position, but a lot of it's informal, where we have influence. The question is not how much power, but where and how am I using it? Am I using it to reflect the character of the king and his kingdom? You know, for the past year and a half, I've been working at uh, a big Fortune 500 company in St. Louis while I've been a seminarian, and my boss there has given me a real picture of what it looks like to reflect the character of the king in the corporate workplace. See, I, I was an intern there, but the whole time I felt like I had the dignity of a professional peer of his. He used his power to lift me up, to cultivate the things that the Lord had given me. He used his power to reflect the king and his kingdom. Well, maybe you aren't in business. Maybe you're a parent. Parenthood has a lot of power. Are you using that to reflect the king who is quick to forgive, who desires nothing more than his child to come home and be present with him, to walk with him. Maybe it's just the power of your words at a cashier at the grocery store or a neighbor down the street or somebody who's down and out. Or maybe it's friends that look up to you, people that you have influence over. The question is, are we using our power to reflect the character of the king and his kingdom. Now, I just want to take a minute here. This text talks about how we use our power, but it also talks specifically about a social injustice. And anytime we talk about social justice, it's conflictual a lot of times in the American church. And John Piper, a few years back at a big conference said, it seems that the church has tended to gravitate towards two poles. One that is entirely focused with present day suffering and one that is entirely focused with eternal suffering. Now, it's not that black and white. It's more complicated than that. But I kind of probably most of us probably come from this soul winning eternal emphasis and the thing is that in Scripture, these themes run side by side throughout. It is our salvation with the Lord that drives us to move and show that He has an active claim on every aspect of our lives today. For example, if you think about Exodus, if you asked an Israelite, are you saved? They would say, yes. The Lord delivered me from oppression. He brought me out of Egypt. Yes, I'm saved. I trust in that God. They go side by side. You cannot separate them. And so I would urge you to consider how can you use your power in a way that lifts the poor, that has an eye for the orphan and the widow, that has an eye for where social injustices are still going on today, here, and all over the world. Are we using our power to reflect the character of the king and his kingdom? So we must reflect it with our power, but finally we must reflect it with our posture. Now we get to this last portion of the text here. We've seen this 
story unravel, this corrupt, awful situation where Naboth ends up wrongly killed. And enter Elijah, enter the word of the Lord, and we say, yes. I don't know if you're like me, but I get to this part of the text, and I'm like, yes, God, bring it. This guy's bad. I mean, do you see what he's done? Yes, the Lord is on the scene. We read about this judgment that Elijah gives from the Lord. And then we read in verse 25 and 26 that Ahab is the worst king ever. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. I, amen. We're just getting ready here. And then we hit a little snag. Verses 27 through 29. Ahab hears the words of the Lord and he tears his clothes. He humbles himself before the Lord. And the Lord turns to Elijah and says, Have you seen this? Because of this, I'm not going to do this right away. He deserves to be wiped out immediately. But I'm not going to give him what he deserves. He's humbled himself before me. And I'm just like, what? You're going to let him off the hook. Well, the reality is God is not letting him off the hook. He's delaying his judgment. That's what it says in the text. He's going to bring it later. He's giving him a lesser penalty. But really, he's giving him time. He's giving him time to repent to actually not just humble himself and feel bad about what he's done, but actually turn and set his heart on the king, King Yahweh, the true king. And you know, my reaction reveals more about my heart too, doesn't it? See, I see that the character of the king is to show mercy and patience. And I want the opposite. So I realize that I must reflect the character of the king in my posture towards others in mercy, but also in my posture before God himself. The text is a warning and an invitation to us. It's a gracious warning. A gracious warning that God is inviting us to come to him. Is there something you'd like to tell me? Come to him. He sees all these things happening. If it wasn't for God intervening, maybe no one would have known that this wrongly happened. But God's word intervenes. God is there. God sees. And his posture is that of mercy, of welcoming us back. So we must reflect the character of the king and his kingdom with this patient posture of mercy towards others and a humble posture of repentance before God. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He mumbled to his dad as he looked at the ground. See, this son had ran away from home, and he had been living a reckless life. He lost everything. Everything he had, everything his father ever gave to him. If this sounds familiar, that's because it's the prodigal son story that we find in Luke chapter 15. If you remember this, this son comes home and he thinks he's no longer even worthy to be 
called a son. He humbles himself before his father. And what does his father do? He brings the family ring and the robe and he calls for the prized lamb to be slaughtered. He throws the best party he could afford to throw. But if you remember, there was another brother too. And he came home from the field after working a long day for his dad. And he was furious. See, his self-righteous pride towards his father welcoming his brother in actually ended up with him not getting to enjoy this party either. The father has this merciful posture towards his reckless son. And you better believe that they had a conversation later about his reckless living. That there were some consequences about how he, the freedom he had going forward. There were some changes that had to be had. But the way he greeted his son was that of mercy and welcome. Because that father is on the throne. Because that Lord of lavish mercy is on the throne. We must reflect the character of that king and his kingdom with our posture. Who is it that you struggle to show this posture of mercy towards? Who is it that we all struggle to think, I'm above them? They're below me. Is it maybe a boss that is driving you crazy? That is throwing people under the bus and doing terrible things? Maybe it's a coworker that you are becoming tiresome of. Maybe it's a family member that's just living recklessly like this son and hurting people in the process. Maybe it's Folks down the street in Creekwood Housing Project. Maybe it's the UNCW party scene. Maybe it's the gay community here in UNCW. See, it doesn't mean that we never talk about sin. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for our actions. But God's posture is to welcome people in mercifully into relationship with him. Are we reflecting that character of the king and his kingdom? Do you have something you'd like to tell me? What I love about that story is that the father asked father asked that is a gracious question do you have something you'd like to tell me he asked and welcomed her to confess and i'm sure there were some consequences i'm sure the scissors are now very high in their house but the result is he welcomed her into his arms into relationship with him and not only that that he had a greater vision for what she would do with that aspect of her life. See, this is the good news to us this morning, is that this Lord is on the throne. This Father is on the throne. And do you see how if this is the Father that is on the throne, it changes everything. 
It changes every aspect of our lives. Because we know that this Father has this better idea for us. He has this kingdom, this kingdom of shalom, of justice, of peace and righteousness, of flourishing. And we know that from this text, that he does not let this injustice go undone. But we also have a greater picture of this. We have a greater picture because we have the picture of Christ the King. In his life and death and resurrection who ushered in the beginning of the end. The beginning of this new kingdom. This kingdom of shalom, of wholeness, of glory. We have Christ the King. And we have the comfort and assurance of the end of the story. The comfort and assurance of Revelations 21 where it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The kingdom of shalom, of what ought to be in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. The King Jesus. This is the true King in His kingdom. This is the Lord who is on the throne. Because of that, let us go forth from here and reflect that King and that kingdom in every aspect of our lives. Pray with me. Lord, You are the great King. Forgive us for so many ways that we try to sit on your throne. That we want what we want instead of reflect your character. Thank you most of all that you welcome us in. As our loving Father, that you receive us with open arms. That you receive us with mercy and love. And we pray that by your spirit you would continue to work out your salvation in us. That we would be a light to the nations. That people would see us in all areas of our lives and say, I want to serve that King. For Lord, you are worthy. We pray all this in the name of your Holy Son. Amen.